Welcome everyone to the RJOS podcast. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Taryn Rose. Dr. Rose's story is unique in that she successfully transitioned from being an orthopedic surgeon to an entrepreneur and created her own namesake luxury shoe company, which she sold for $40 million in 2008. I'm very appreciative of Dr. Rose for taking the time to speak with me and also for providing me with a free consultation as to why my wedding shoes weren't fitting me properly. I had an absolute blast speaking with Dr. Rose and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Taryn Rose, thank you so much for joining us on the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society podcast. I am so excited to speak with you today, and I really appreciate the time that you're taking to speak with us. It's my complete pleasure. Awesome. Well, I would love for you to introduce us to uh, who you are, where you went to your childhood, where you went to medical school residency, and your life after residency. Sure. So... um... I started in America as a refugee. Mm -hmm. So imagine a seven-year-old girl um, three days before the end of the Vietnam War uh, being shuttled to the embassy, not really knowing anything except for we're going to America. (sighs) And because of my personality, I was actually excited about it. Um, and I was jumping up and down thinking, okay, this is an, an adventure. And right. to this day, I still love to travel and, mm-hmm. and see new places. So, um, we made it to an island called, uh, Wake Island. And there my parents were asked where they would like to go. And they signed up to go to Camp Pendleton in mm-hmm. California because right. we have some relatives there. Um, so we were very excited when finally after a, you know, flying from the middle of the Pacific and we landed. The only problem was we were in Arkansas. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, nothing against Arkansas, but that's certainly different. Exactly. I mean, it's very different. We didn't know anyone there. And right. my father, who is a doctor, had to cold call other doctors from the phone booth in the oh, camp wow. because we needed a sponsor to get out of the, the camp. So, so he's just dialing and hoping that someone uh, would help us. Um, And, and miraculously, if you think about this, how often, like, how how do you think this could happen in the days before Twitter, before Mm -hmm. uh, voicemail even, because this was in 1975, and he was at a phone booth. So he reached one office where the wife of the doctor was the office manager. Mm -hmm. So she says, well, let me speak to my husband tonight and I'll call you back. And the only number he had was that phone booth. Oh no! So, and imagine in today's world, how often do people call you back at exactly the same time that they said (laughs) they would, right? right. Um, Yeah. So, so she did call. He had to like fend off other people trying to make phone calls. Um, and they were our sponsors, Dr. and Mrs. Koenig. Um, and so from, yeah, so we lived in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas mm-hmm. for a year while my father was um, re- basically working as a lab tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was studying at night for his, um, his board exam. Um, the, it, back then it was called the ECFMG. Mm. And then we moved to... Uh, Missouri after he passed that uh, because he decided that he wanted to be a pathologist Mm. so he redid his residency and went into pathology and in a way I understood his decision but it was kind of sad because he loved patient care but he was concerned about having discrimination so he thought it was better to go into a field where you didn't have direct patient care Um, but but the good news is at the end of his career, he went back to patient care and, and mm. really lo- uh, enjoyed that part. Um, right. So so that was Missouri. Um, and we after he finished his residency, we moved to California. Wow. And, you know, I was like the kind of average kid in, in the sense that I played tennis on the tennis right. team. And, 
and, um, you know, was in love with the impossible star of the swim team who was also national honor student and Mm -hmm. went off to USC and Stanford. Like, you know, I was just a typical kid. Um, And I went to uh, UC Irvine for undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I thought for sure, so there I I studied both biology and philosophy because I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if I would go into medicine or law. and then it was so much pressure from my parents. I decided, okay, I'll go into medicine. It happened mm-hmm. to be very easy for me, right. um, just being my ability to learn. And um, I went to USC Medical School. Mm-hmm. And I went into medical school thinking I would become a dermatologist, of all things, because back in those days, um, so I went to medical school, 88 to 92. Mm-hmm. Um, that was before every dermatologist had their own skincare line. Um, you know, so I worked at, for Estee Lauder to pay for college and I thought, oh, you know, if a dermatologist could come up with a skincare line, Mm -hmm. I think women would really gravitate towards that. So that was my plan uh, because I've always been very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, once I got into medical school, I remember had a meeting um, Dr. Donald Wiss, who's a, a very prominent um, trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, it was like one of those moments in your life where you sort of fixate on some someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how like those little ducks will imprint on, yes. on someone and just follow them? <laughs> right, that was right. me with Dr. Wiss. And it made no sense. I'm five foot two. <laughs> Um, and, and I walked up to him after the lecture and I said, uh, Dr. Wiss, do you think women can become orthopedic surgeons? Like so naive, right? Right. right. And he said, roughly, well, of course, why not? So that was it. Cause that was oh. Dr. Wiss and right. he's the nicest guy, but everyone was so intimidated by him. Right. Right. And, except for me, because I didn't know any better. Um, so from that moment, I, I just like said, okay, I'm going to become an orthopedic surgeon, mm-hmm. even though I knew how hard it was going to be because the standards for getting a residency spot was so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm not the valedictorian of the class. I, right. I'm a solid student, um, but not certainly the valedictorian. But my approach was different. I showed up every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. for grand rounds, and I got to know, you know, I basically followed Dr. Vangsness. I'm sure mm-hmm. you remember Dr. Yes. Vangsness around. <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I just, you know, I was just like, sticking to everybody and he actually had me write the uh student exam uh, for for the ortho (laughs) rotation because hey i was there right right right. and so that's one of my my beliefs in life is that if you really love something you are going to be present you're going to be there and people Mm -hmm. are going to notice and they're going to give you opportunities right um so and and i made up for my lack of being the valedictorian in in other ways mm-hmm. um but i have to say that my my acceptance into the program at usc was not entirely smooth not that not from the attendings because i was very fortunate that our chairman dr petsakis was very much supportive of women mm-hmm. he in his first year as chairman, he chose four of us out of 12 spots, which was record-breaking. Right, right. right. Um, But it was actually from the other, from the residents. Mm. Uh, Apparently, there were three men who wrote a letter to Dr. Pitsakis, who said that they felt I was inappropriate because I wore my skirts too short. No. <laughs> yes, and and just BS like that. Um, but you know, they didn't listen to any of that. I only found out because I was also very friendly with the secretaries oh, in gosh. the chairman's office. Right, right. You know, because I'd go in there and say hi, um, and and um <laughs> so I found out about that. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank goodness he you know, no one listened to that. Right. Um 
Oh, and, and to take a step back, so during my um, application process, I went to Dr. Wiss and I said, Dr. Wiss, would you write me a letter of recommendation? Because I think, you know, a letter coming from someone like you would go a long way. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, you're you're a pretty young woman. And before people get upset with him, I didn't feel like he meant it in a sexist way. He's right. just, he was like, you know... You're going to get married or you're probably already married. And this is not a, a great life for, you know, a, a family life. Because mm. I don't think he was ever home. <laughs> right. um, so he said, why don't you try PM&R? No. And, 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 go, and go do a rotation. And if after that you still want ortho, I'll write you a letter. So I did. I went to Washington, D.C. to um, forget where it was. I did a rotation in PMNR and mm-hmm. I swear I was so bored. I was I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and I came back and he honored his word. I said to right. him, I said, I was totally bored mm-hmm. and I really want this. And he mm-hmm. wrote me a letter. Wow. So I, I really appreciate the, the fact that he he was so supportive mm-hmm. and and men like dr pizakis and dr tolo right um so i was very very fortunate um not mm-hmm. that there wasn't uh discrimination sexism coming and actual harassment coming from other people right um but i want to be balanced and and say that i also had a lot of support mm-hmm. um, and in fact one of the authors of that famous letter, after he worked with me, I was a third year and he was a senior. Um, to his credit, he came to me and he apologized. He said, I was Aww. one of the ones that wrote that letter. and You're the hardest working resident I've ever worked with. And I really want to apologize. So I, I have to say, you know, that, that was big of him because I mm-hmm. didn't know the identity of the, the people. Of the wrote. three. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, um, was going through my residency and you know how we have to do the, a research project. Yes. And, um, I decided, I don't know, I forgot how I connected with a researcher, um, about diabetic shoes, Mm. but I became very interested in the fact that the number one reason for non-compliance with footwear for mm-hmm. diabetics was that they were horribly wow. ugly. And yeah. I've always been a very fashion conscious woman. Right. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, okay, well, maybe I can combine my two interests. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, going to... Um, Nike to have help to build shoes according wow. to my specifications. Now, they were not, they weren't going to go on in Vogue magazine by any means, but they were much better looking. Mm-hmm. And we did see an, an improvement in compliance um, for oh. diabetic footwear. But that was where I, I learned about shoemaking and became interested in the shoe industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I finished my residency, I I thought to myself as I I, I was actually going to go into hand. I was going to do a hand fellowship or mm-hmm. apply for a job. And um, as I was filling out the applications, I just had this dread. I was like, this I don't think this is my path, mm-hmm. which was very unusual. I can I can just see how. Well, of course, my parents were like, oh my god, what are you doing? <laughs> And it took me six months while I was studying for the boards to come to the conclusion that I would regret forever Mm -hmm. if I didn't try to start a shoe company Um, because I really felt that I could make a difference. And I had that vision or that intuition that I could make a difference then, but now Mm -hmm. I know for sure that, um, it requires someone from outside the industry for many, many different reasons to really push for the innovation in women's footwear. There's a lot of innovation for sports, like Nike does an amazing job 
Mm-hmm. They, all of the big sports brands have um, a lot of uh, money for R&D and development of new technology, mm-hmm. but not for women's dress shoes. Um, mm. As I say, you know, why can't we get a man on the moon, but we can't get a woman down the street comfortably? Right, right. right. Because, because the entire industry is, is run by men, mm-hmm. and they don't feel our pain point, and actually they don't care because it is a risk to innovate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very expensive to change how you've worked um, for decades and you know for over a century nothing mm-hmm. has changed in how shoes have been made so I decided after I passed my boards I told my husband at the time I said let me try this and if it doesn't work I'll go back and do my hand fellowship then mm-hmm. and it's fair. It's fair. Yeah, yeah. That was my backup plan, right? Plan B was to go be an like hand fellowship. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god, that's awesome. Uh, and I, I just want to clarify that it wasn't that I didn't enjoy orthopedics. I, mm-hmm. I loved it, um, but I had this uh, sort of a not calling is not the right word because it, it was more of I knew that if I could be both creative and analytical that would be my my happy space right that would be nirvana for me mm-hmm. um so i uh i i started my company and um i was very fortunate that back then it, it was easy to sell to nordstrom because the buyers were in the store so mm-hmm. you know i i'm used to stalking people so I instead of attendings, I, I moved over to the buyers and I got my first order from Nordstrom, which then brought in a lot of independence. Mm-hmm. Um, so next thing I knew, I was on Oprah and my business went from eight million to sixteen million in twelve months. Wow! And that that was difficult in of itself. There, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, those are great numbers, good news, but there's a lot of work that has to. Right. Um, be done in the background to keep up with that growth. It's sort mm-hmm. of like the human body. Right. You know, when when you have fast growth, um, there's a, a lot of stress on on the body mm. um, uh, while you're growing. Yeah. Um, so um, then in 2008, so we were sold in all major department stores. Right. Uh, over 300. Um, uh, independence. I was in mm-hmm. Harrods. Um, so we were starting to go international. Um, but I have to say that by 2008, I, I was getting burnt out. Um, right. And, and so you can imagine, you know, how tough a person like me, uh, how tough I am, mm-hmm. but it was the business, uh, in the shoe business is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're constantly running. So I do the collection, go to Italy, fix the collection, edit it, come back, and I'd have to focus on marketing and sales. And mm-hmm. it's just like rinse and repeat. You're just um, the only time I got some rest was um, in June and for a couple of weeks during um, uh, the holidays, um, Christmas, right. and New Year's. Right. So it, it, but it was a lot of travel. I was mm-hmm. on the road. 220 days out of the year oh my gosh um Mm. yeah so an offer came in in 2008 to buy my company Mm -hmm. and on hindsight i would say i shouldn't have sold but at that moment was exactly what i needed because i didn't see uh a way out Um, Mm -hmm. on hindsight I, i would have done things differently but I sold, and I was very lucky. I got the wire two weeks before the Great Recession. Oh wow! So I, yeah, so better lucky than good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Um, and and I can still remember, like in June of that year, I called up my lawyer because the negotiations, the sales mm-hmm. process had been going on for uh, almost six months. I said, okay, why are we still? not in closing this, mm-hmm. I, you know, what's going on. He's like, Oh, there's three, 
three little uh, points that we have not uh, agreed on. I said, what are they? It, and they weren't that important to me. So I'm like, just give it to them. I want right. this done. And thank goodness I did because otherwise I would, it would have been, been yeah. in, in a lurch. Because so, yeah. so many of my fellow entrepreneurs that did not close before the Great Recession, mm. their deal completely fell apart. Right. Um, mm. Yeah. So, so then I was hanging out. Um, I I was spending time with my young young children. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have three kids who are oh. now twenty, sixteen, and fifteen. Okay. And nice. so I was very lucky to have the time while they were toddlers mm-hmm. to spend spend time with them. Because I feel right. like as babies, they don't quite know, right? You know, who, who feeds them and right, right? Um, and then as teenagers, they don't want you. So right, is that, there's that is sweet that, spot. Yeah, that like between three and ten, where they just love you and they want to be with you. And mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to to have those years with my kids. Um, right, and then in uh, 2014. Um, my partner now, Enrico Queenie, he's both my life partner and my business partner. Nice. Contacted me, and we had met 17 years prior um, because he was the best friend of the two guys who helped me get started in Italy. They mm. one owned a factory, and the other one um, went had a, a tannery. Right. And he reached out to me, and he he said, you know, I have this technology and it would make shoes more comfortable. Would you be interested? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, when I'd, I'd be interested in seeing mm-hmm. it, but he shows up at my house <laughs> with three days notice. And oh my gosh. he put the prototype. Um, it, it looked, it wasn't quite this, but I don't know if you see, if you can see the carbon fiber piece. Yes. Yes. Um, so I saw that I'm on my kitchen table and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. That's the next revolution. Because I felt that with this new construction, he was addressing the tensegrity of the foot Mm -hmm. in the sense that the the foot is a a dome Mm -hmm. with three arches and they're both compression forces as well as tension forces. Right. So I said, you know, all of the support systems we've had in the past did not address the tension Mm. aspect. Um, They were basically trying to decrease compression forces. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, it's it's so low profile that it can be placed in a very beautiful, sexy heel Mm -hmm. like this. Um, So I said, well, I wasn't intending on going back into the shoe industry, but I feel like this is the next revolution and I want to be a part of it. Because I think that my, if I had to say what motivates me, mm-hmm. it's not the money, it's leaving behind legacy, leaving mm. behind the, the, the legacy of hopefully being able to say that I had a part in changing the shoe industry. Right, right. So no, that's, that's my main motivation. Yeah. No, that's so anyways, awesome. I've been, I've and been I, going on and on and on. So no, it's fantastic. What and I think it's, I yeah. No, I w- what I would love to hear is what I what I love about your story is that you literally just said yeah. So I just uh, started this company, and it's literally and but I I can only imagine that like starting a company requires so much more effort and all these sorts of things. And so I would love if you can kind of just delve into those moments. Like how how do you how do you create a shoe company? How do you get your foot into the door? Yes. <laughs> so I always tell fellow physicians, we are smart enough to get through medical school and through residency where we are taught to learn what we don't know, right? No one's mm-hmm. sitting there spoon feeding, especially at county. Right, right. You know, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. You know, so you want to do one, teach one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I basically got got a bunch of books and read about how to write a business plan. Um, I think I read three books about that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I would stay up all night. This was before they had programs to basically walk you through it all. Right. Um, and, you know, the funniest thing that I actually had to learn was how to use a fax machine. <laughs> I'm so old. <laughs> like, I, you know, I was used to walking into the secretary's office and saying, mm-hmm. okay, you send this fax off, right? Right. Um, so I, I had to learn a lot of sort of those skills too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught myself how to use an Excel sheet. Um, right. I, I had no need before. Um, and then um, the Small Business Administration has great resources. Mm. So I went to classes about how to write a press release, mm-hmm. um, a class teaching me how to use Excel. Right, um, right. And so I was completely self-taught. Self-taught. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as physicians, we're very fast learners. I remember um, the one good thing that I did was from the very first month, I kept really great financial records. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very important when you sell is if you have all of that organized, it's much easier because whoever's buying your company is going to want to pick everything apart. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I had like, I don't know, six months worth of financial documents and the accountant came in and he, he put together the report and he taught me how to read a uh, financial. Mm-hmm. And then like three months later for the next quarterly, um, he came back and I said, oh no, that number's wrong. And he's like, what do you know? I just taught you how to read this. It's not wrong. And I said, no, I think so. Can you look at it again? Mm-hmm. And sh- and he came back. He's like, oh my gosh, you're right. Oh, you wow. know, right. that was wrong. So I think mm-hmm. that we as physicians should be more um, confident in mm-hmm. our skills um, because we've gone through the ringer and and we survived and we learned a lot of great skills. So my business was like, you know, I would basically do a physical exam on my business. So you start with, you know, all of the different systems. Mm -hmm. So from product, cash flow, um, distribution, sales, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it works as one, one um, system. Hmm. Um, so when one part of your system goes out of whack, you need to figure out how you can, you can, um, uh, obtain homeostasis. So I I remember during one of my, uh, tantrums, I was walking through with my accountant. I'm like, I don't get it. We have, we're showing so much profit on paper, but where's all the cash? I'm constantly looking for cash. And he's like, look around. There's $4 million worth of inventory, sit, you know, sitting here. Right. So it's it's there. So you have to release that. And mm. so I went and told my salespeople, okay, there's a bonus for, for you to get rid of 30% mm-hmm. of this. So that's, that's just, to me, it's, it kind of, it's common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in today's world, what I'm having to learn more because I built my first business before Facebook, before um, Zappos. I, I remember Zappos coming to me the very first season they were starting. Wow. And basically begging us to sell to them. And I was right. like, well, first of all, you know, we're a luxury brand. Second of all, why should I drop shit? Why, why am right. I doing all of the work? And you, you know, you get the benefit. And so the next season they came back and they said, okay, now we have a a luxury category Mm -hmm. and we'll actually buy the inventory. And that's when I said, okay. Right. Um, Right. And, and I, you know, met Tony Shea, who was in the middle of all of the, the, the deaths, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all the cubicles in sitting inside a tent. That was his office. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) so fun. Fun times. Yes. Um, so I I feel that there's a lot of resources out there that you can be self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, but it also depends on what type of business. So, you know, if you are going into technology and it's going to require a lot of cash burn mm-hmm. um, before you can monetize, that's, that's, that's different. True. Um, I've always run my business to try to get to profitability as fast as possible because mm-hmm. I grew organically. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have my first investor until seven years into my first company. And with this company, yeah. we are still self-funded. Mm-hmm. And we're able to do that because I, I focus very much on profitability because we we take that profit and put it back into growth. Mm. And, you know, it's not to say that we won't take on investors um, in the future. It's just a matter of we want to get to a point where we we hold the power and the leverage mm. because, um, as I said, my focus is not on money, but leaving a legacy. Mm-hmm. And when you bring in venture capitalists who only care about money, then my concern is I may not be able to leave my legacy. And mm-hmm. there's only so many projects you can do in your life where you actually have a shot. True. At changing how people live right no that's that's amazing and speaking of changing the way people live i would love for you to kind of delve into what makes your luxury shoes so special in the sense that changing the way that women and men uh feel comfortable in their shoes but i was hoping you can just basically talk about what makes your luxury shoes so special Sure. So I, the main difference um, is our patented proprietary technology that's called ALIA, mm-hmm. Active Lift in Alignment. That's the acronym. Mm-hmm. Because it's the first dynamically responsive um, support system for shoes. Because right. every other support system s- supports you in a static position. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you're, you're standing maybe... But even when you're standing, you're not completely still. Right. And of course, when you're walking, your your foot is it goes through the gait cycle and it's dynamic. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to block you in one position. So that's the, the number one. And how we achieve that is through um, uh, trade secret ways of using a nanotechnology resin mm-hmm. as well as the uh, way uh, the fibers of our carbon fiber piece is laid mm-hmm. um and the reason that we're so good at this is my partner Enrico. he is a former um, european champion windsurfer oh. and he still is actively racing mm-hmm. so he has years of experience with um, using resins and carbon fiber, fiberglass right, um, right. in that sport. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, I don't know if you can see this well, but you see how there's the arch comes both laterally and medially. It curves yes. up. So you're hugged. So we support all three arches of your foot, medial, mm. lateral, and transverse. Right. So we're, we're supporting your dome. And, mm-hmm. and by doing that, it, it does a, a few things. Number one is it increases the surface area in contact with your foot. So you have less mm-hmm. pressure concentrating. And for women in a heel, it's less pressure on the metatarsal heads. Because right. without that, there is so much increase in pressure. Seven times your body's weight when wow. you go above two inches. Mm. The second thing is that because it's, there's more in contact with your foot, you also have better energy return because there's not a dissipation of energy as mm. you as you walk. Right. You also have more of your proprioceptive receptors in contact with your foot. Mm-hmm. So women, especially in a in a narrow heel like this, mm-hmm. will report, "Oh, I feel very stable. I mm-hmm. I wasn't um, expecting that." Um, and then when you are in a lower heel, in a flat, um, we find that there's less fatigue and, of course, more, more comfort as well. Hmm. Um, as if you think about it, if you 
cross your legs and just look at your foot in a relaxed position. It's not flat. Right, right. You know, it, it wants to be slightly inclined and there's an arch to your foot. So mm-hmm. we, we try to use our technology to place you into that position of um, relaxation. Mm-hmm. So even in a flat, your, our shoes are not flat, flat. Right. There's a slight incline. That literally is just, I love how amazingly like scientific that explanation was. That was absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Oh well, my gosh. I, I, I love it because most of the time I drone on to lawyers and they're looking at me like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, just put some shoes on me. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So I, I love having an audience that understands this. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so I literally I've never I've never thought about it. And I think the like when you say when you have that narrow um heel base that's so true where she's like, I don't feel stable at all. So I think that just makes so much sense. And yeah. Um I love your Oh story and another about, thing, can, yes. can I do, say one more thing? Because I, I never I don't really talk about this because I can't make a claim without um, a larger study. But what my theory is that because our technology places your joints back into the optimal position, Mm -hmm. your soft tissue can then work in, in its optimal lengths as well. So Mm. we're finding like with Enrico, he Mm -hmm. had a hot spot in his in his uh, over his metatarsal heads that went away two months after he wore sneakers that we are building for men and women but oh wow so i believe that the body is actually optimizing Mm -hmm. um as it's wearing our shoes of course Mm -hmm. i I normally wouldn't make that claim until i had more data but right um the other things i talked about we do have data for that so yeah i'm comfortable saying that Uh, (laughs) but with this this intimate group of (laughs) yes i know that's so that's that's just so amazing and i know that you you talk about the fact that you've had you know, you've had this trait of entrepreneurship and you kind of knew that you wanted to do this. What are, do you think the traits are of a successful entrepreneur? Like what, what do you think folks need to have in order to reach that level? You have to be able to tolerate risk. Mm. And, and that's a, a key thing. And I do believe that there is a genetic component to that. Right. Um, on one of my trips to Hawaii to do an appearance at Neiman Marcus, I sat next to a um, the head of uh, psychobiology at um, UCLA. Right. Uh, blanking out on his name, I feel bad because um, <laughs> I, I often quote him, and he he did he was writing a book about how America is so entrepreneurial because the people here have a greater prevalence of a gene. It's a dopamine gene. Um, it's DR-7. Uh, the general population tend to have DR-4, mm-hmm. which um, so they see that in populations that have migrated furthest away from their home base, mm-hmm. uh, let's say from, from Africa, uh, there was a greater prevalence of dr Dash seven, so it's it's basically your. So I have a higher tolerance for risk because it takes a lot more dopamine to excite my brain, basically, and you see that in 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 immigrants a a lot more in immigrants. So that was his thesis, and I do I do believe that because in my family. you know, I have a sister who uh, has her own business as well. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, so there's, I, I just feel like there's just more. There's something there. Yeah. yeah. No, so that's, that's beautiful. That's, yeah, that's number one. Um, number two, I think it's a, ha- having a passion for wanting to create something that didn't exist before. Um mm-hmm. And, and seeing that 
and you're so passionate about it that nothing it's not like it, I had an attending telling me that I had to wake up at or not sleep at all overnight to write my business plan. Like I just wanted to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's that, that passion carries you a long way. And that's, most physicians have that. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel that whether we practice medicine or we start a business, it requires the same kind of mindset and, and skill set. Nice. No, that's so true. And I know that, We've talked a lot about a lot of your successes, and I hope this is not a sore subject, but I would love to talk about some of the times, the challenges, or quote-unquote failures that you may have experienced along your journey. Oh, of course. I mean, no one succeeds all of the time. <laughs> right. So um, I, I joke that, um, so I, I've had two failed marriages, um, so running a $40 million business has its uh, toll on your personal life. Um, on the business side, as I mentioned before, I think uh, now on hindsight, it was a mistake to sell my first company. Right. The people who bought my company are now making minimum, minimum. They just bought the brand, just the name, and they're making a minimum a million dollars a year for doing nothing. So mm -hmm. I could have been the one to license out my name right? if I didn't want to be the operator. Um, but I don't know, for some reason, my lawyer didn't advise me, but I had my right. accountant who was in the business as my COO. They didn't mm -hmm. give me that advice. So I had to learn the hard way. Um, right. And uh, there were many times, as I alluded to before, I was running out of cash because mm -hmm. when you're growing, it, you have to, you know, feed that teenager a lot of food to, to keep up with the growth. Well, in a business, right. it's a lot of cash. And mm. <laughs> I remember paying for payroll with my American Express. I mean, thank God I had an American Express card that time. I think it was kind right. of quasi-illegal. I don't know how I did it. But... Um, <laughs> You know, and and I remember the night before I gave birth to my daughter, I was closing up the office and it was at midnight and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay the invoice for the shipment that just came in? Mm -hmm. um, and I went to labor at 5 a.m. and my mother arrives um, and she said, Oh, you know that stock that you've had that was just like two dollars for a long time? It went up to eighteen today. And I was like, Are you kidding me? Sell, sell right now. I need oh that gosh. cash. This is my lucky baby. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And she was born That's... on the on the eighteenth. So yeah. So there's oh my gosh. many, many times, many times that I was like on right. the brink of, of losing it. Mm -hmm. Um so it's, I suppose it's like a patient, you don't give up. Right. You know, it may not look good for that patient, but you're going to keep trying. You're going to do everything you can mm -hmm. to revive your patient. And that's right. what the business is, was like for me. Wow. Wow. And I, I know we've talked a little bit about some of the gender discrimination that you faced in your medical school residency. And you had mentioned that, the fashion industry, the shoe industry was male dominated. And so I was hoping you can kind of talk about whether or not you did in fact experience gender discrimination when you went on into the fashion industry and kind of how that compared to what you faced as you were in your orthopedic career. Sure. So um, in orthopedics, of course, I, I faced um, disc discrimination. Like, you know, I remember one Surprisingly, it was a young attending. It wasn't one of the old guys um, who walked in and announced, oh, women have no uh, place being in the operating room. And, you know, attendings try, like, I'm operating with an attending with medical students behind me. And the attending's like, oh, you know, have you ever faked an orgasm? No. Was, yeah. And... And I've always dealt with it with humor. So I said, hmm, no, but has your wife had to? 
you know, which made which which made everybody laugh, including that attending. But it was clearly not appropriate in front of my my right. students, right? Right. So, so I, I guess I just have thick skin. I just develop thick skin, and right. Um, and and it's a generational thing because you know, in I think in your generation, that 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 would be been, that would end badly yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> thankfully um, so, I, oh gosh yeah so i i think that we have to remember that in 1990 say i was between 1992 and 97 mm-hmm. that was normal i mean you just don't as a woman you just at least i felt and i think i would say a lot of my uh, fellow women just felt like, okay, we're lucky to be here. Let's not make waves. Let's get through this mm-hmm. and and hope that things change in the future. Right. Um, so that was good for the shoe industry. In the shoe industry, there wasn't outright sexual harassment like that, but it was more of in the sense that it was all men in power. So mm-hmm. they made the decisions. Um and, and it still is like that until today. So right. w- when when the men are only looking at the numbers, they're like, oh, women are buying shoes regardless of what we put out there. So why should we risk building shoes in a completely different way mm-hmm. and, and not have the return as fast? Because how we build shoes and... We're, I, I say we're like the Tesla of shoes because not only is it about the new technology, it's right. how we sell is completely different. Mm-hmm. Virtual fittings, I'm now working on AI for fitting. So oh, wow. uh, a lot of uh, really pushing the innovation. But the, in, the shoe industry itself is very old school. I call it the school of the C students. So, so that's the problem. And until... You have people who are outsiders like me and like Enrico. Enrico mm-hmm. started as an architect and oh, wow. an industrial designer. He's not from the shoe industry. He mm-hmm. was born and ha- lives in an area full of shoe manufacturers who mm-hmm. all think we're crazy, by the way, um, because our business model is very different. Um, and But he's not from the industry. So he, mm-hmm. we... We do things in a completely different way. So, mm. for example, for of course it, there is a charge, but we can actually make shoes for mismatched feet because if you're more than a half size different, there's always going to be one side that's not comfortable. Right. It right? doesn't right. fit. And when you get up to a heel, mm. that's more even more challenging. Right. You're trying to do something that is a lot more demanding mm-hmm. than going to target. Right. So you've got to engineer and make that product so much better because you're mm-hmm. demanding more performance. Right. So, uh, and because Enrico and I personally see our clients for the most part, of course that will change with time. But um, when we, in, the, in this last two years, we've seen over 2,000 customers ourselves. We've mm-hmm. noticed that they, the misconceptions... So the people who make the shoes never meet the final client. Mm-hmm. So they're, the people making the shoes are just saying, oh, this has been how we make shoes for the last 100 years. Why should we change? The, right? So, yeah, so true. And, yeah, and Enrico and I are very unusual because... We see the entire process. Mm. So there is a difference, for example, in volume mm-hmm. in America than in Europe. They, I Again, this is anecdotal, but I see a completely different foot type with um, women from India mm-hmm. versus women from uh, Southeast Asia like Vietnam or mm-hmm. even Thailand, China. So right. I'm, I'm seeing these things anecdotally. Um, and mm-hmm. it, I would say, I don't know if it's just our clients, but 
a women here have very slim, meaning low volume, low volume feet mm -hmm. um, a, versus in Europe. And what happens is if you're up on a hill, gravity is going to force you down. Mm -hmm. So if this is too much of a, too voluminous, mm -hmm. you slide forward into the tip. Right. And that's why women are like, oh, these are so painful. Mm -hmm. What you need is less volume here to block you from sliding into, into the toe right. box. Right. Um, we see there's like some women have really long, slim foot. So they might have the length of a, a size 40, but their mm -hmm. volume is like a size 36. So they're not going to find, especially heels. Again, in heels, you're demanding more performance. Mm -hmm. So things have to fit better. And mm -hmm. But even then, I, I often ask these women, I said, do you have problems with running shoes too? And they're like, yes. How did you know? I said, yeah, because I can, I can imagine. Right. Um, right. Or like in my case, my foot is wider in the front than in proportion. So I have a... 37 and a half forefoot mm -hmm. with the length of a size 36. Mm -hmm. So there's a mismatch in proportions too. So we're addressing all of those foot types. Wow. So it's like the gene companies that now have different body types that they fit, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a recognition that yeah. we're, we're not homogenous and mm -hmm. certainly feet are not. And it's right. actually very, very difficult and technical hmm. what we, what we've done. And other people think, oh, how can they do this? This is not profitable. Mm -hmm. My, because the, the people over here are making shoes, their way of making a profit is to make as much volume as possible. So you're just cranking out as fast as possible. So mm -hmm. maybe it takes a another designer um, shoe to be made um, in 30 minutes right. versus ours is three hours. Mm -hmm. Some of it is in three days, you know? Um, right. But uh, I feel differently in the sense that we're not risking inventory because the vast majority of our shoes are made to order, mm -hmm. made to measure. So, I'm not having that $4 million in my warehouse problem. Right. And, right. So mm -hmm. I have learned things from my last company. So mm -hmm. when everything shut down from the pandemic, you know, we have friends who work as, as shoe manufacturers work for Gucci who are on the brink of having to close forever because Gucci said, ah, sorry, keep your the inventory that you've made for us. Cause we, our stores are closed and we don't have any place to oh, put it yeah. so they're holding the bag and they it's hot potatoes and they put all of the cash in mm -hmm. to that inventory and right you know they can't release that cash so it's mm -hmm. it's very tough whereas we were very fortunate that we were we didn't have our cash tied up in a lot of inventory mm. um during this pandemic um right and right. You know, you adapt uh, during this pand pandemic. Um, my focus has been on virtual fittings. How, how do we do that effectively? Mm -hmm. And um, focusing more online, which I have to admit, I, I have to learn how digital marketing works better. And that's what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as I said, the next thing will be um, AI for um, replacing some of the work that we're doing uh, with humans now, well, with wow. basically the guys in Italy. So, um, no, that's what I love is right. the, uh, to go back to the concept of why would she leave orthopedics? Mm -hmm. I wanted a life where I would be a constant learner, uh, where I would be forced to constantly learn new skills, improve my skills, mm -hmm. um, and not not to say that in orthopedics there isn't that. Of course, thing you know, procedures change, technology change, but I felt like as a community orthopedic surgeon, I probably would have done the same right. seven or eight procedures over and over again, mm -hmm. and and that's not going to excite my crazy brain. Um, so that's yeah. I think that at the end of the day, I 
that's what I enjoy is mm. learning something new and seeing seeing how something that may not have people have not thought of as being a, a fit. Mm-hmm. Now I put it together and it's something completely new. Yeah, that's amazing. Is is there <laughs> anything that you miss about medicine? I miss the procedures. I mm. I loved the actual physical aspect of operating. Right. Um, I think now that I know myself a bit more, it was probably because I, I'm I'm ADD. So. Mm-hmm being in surgery forced me to focus and it was actually very relaxing um that that was all i had to do at that moment so i do need i I miss the procedures and seeing the results yeah Mm -hmm. um i have to say i told i probably would have been fired multiple times seeing how (laughs) things have changed you know like reading about how especially women get written up by nurses and administrators. Yes. Uh, I, I would not have done well. I know. It would have, been, know. Tur- it would have turned out very bad for me. I know. <laughs> Is there anything that you think the field of orthopedic surgery can learn from the shoe industry now that you've kind of been in both worlds? Absolutely. Um, first of all, there is so much that can be done to alleviate the eventual need for surgery with the right fit Hmm. because women are not taught how to fit shoes very well um, because frankly the person selling them the shoes don't really know that much Mm -hmm. um and the so if you can send certain patients um two people who really understand how to fit, they can alleviate a lot of the pain mm-hmm. um, from before it requires any surgical intervention. Um, so th- there is this common misconception that by wearing, for example, a pointed toe shoe, you're mm-hmm. gonna lead to more hammer toes um, but that's because it wasn't the right fit. If right. it was the right fit, your toes in here, it doesn't mm-hmm. go into the tip. Right. And there should be plenty of space. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, I think that that's really important. Um, but getting the right fit is very technically challenging, mm-hmm. not only in the diagnosis, but in the actual making of the shoes. So, mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's really key. Um, and I think that as an orthopedic surgeon who sees a patient who is not ready for surgery or, you know, it, she, she's a few years away, advise her to, to spend the money and invest in proper footwear. Right. Um, it's, I think that that would be a really solid investment. Mm-hmm. For, for a lot of women. Right. No, that's so true. And Dr. Rose, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And so I would like to ask my final question to you. And that is, what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons, both who are interested in entrepreneurship, as well as those who are not? <laughs> um, my motto has always been, I feared regret more than failure. Mm-hmm. So, as orthopedic surgeons, for sure, we you know we're the top of the top, one right. of the tops of the top. So we we haven't failed very often, mm-hmm. but don't fear don't fear it. Um, don't just think about what you want to do and ask yourself on your deathbed: Are you going to regret not having done? And I have, I have this, what I call the airplane test is I always ask myself, um, when I am ready to take off, if this plane crashes today, would I, would I be okay? And right. it's funny cause I, the, I met another entrepreneur who's 
very, he's a billionaire. He's very successful. And he does the exact same thing. Mm. And that's my litmus test of, is this the life that I'm, I want to live? And right. if I can go down and say, and be at peace and say, okay, I've done what I wanted to do. Right. And it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that then, then you're, you're doing the right thing. And gosh, you know, I, I hope that there's as many great orthopedic surgeons that stay in orthopedics as possible because <laughs> <laughs> we, we need, we need uh, great physicians and surgeons. So I'm, I'm not here to say, Oh, you know, leave, but if you have a burning vision, if you have a burning idea, right. don't, don't fear failure. No, that's awesome. Dr. Rose, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I will never look at shoes the same ever again. And I (laughs) sincerely appreciate your story and your words of wisdom. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Taryn Rose. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. I would like to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I would also like to thank the RJOS for allowing me to partner with them and share these stories. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.